Welcome to Design Meets Business, a show where design leaders talk about practical ways to quantify design, about making our work more transparent, and about how designers can make a bigger impact in their organization. I'm your host, Christian Vasile. And before we begin, I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Today, I'm talking to Nati Asher, Director of Design at Salesforce. And instead of talking about a million topics, I've kept this one a bit more focused. So you'll hear a really great conversation about hiring, how to stand out, how to create a better portfolio, what to ask during an interview, and about linking your design work with the wider business efforts. This is a big episode. Enjoy. Nati, welcome to Design Meets Business. I'm so happy that I get to talk to you today because I know you've got so much to share with us about design leadership and building teams and the importance of designers understanding the wider business context that they're working in. So it's going to be really exciting. Looking forward to the next hour. You're uh, working for Salesforce right now in Israel as a director of product design, but before that, you've also been with Bulldogs and WeWork and Citibank and many others before. So before we dive into everything that you've learned there, well, maybe not everything, but a few of the things that you've learned there, tell us a bit about yourself and you know how you started in design and how you got to where you are today. First of all, thank you, Christian, for hosting me. I'm really, really excited about this opportunity. And yes, uh, at the moment, I'm leading a team at Salesforce for the last nine months. Before that, as you said, I've been in different uh, companies, uh, startups, corporates, all around the Israeli ecosystem of high-tech companies. Yes, I'm based in Israel and I'm originally from Uruguay and moved here almost 17 years ago. So it's been a while and I have a master's degree on computer science, but I started my career back then when I was studying instructional design, which in many ways is kind of a niche of UX. I, I didn't know the term. I didn't know what UX was. And then um, through some courses that I had uh, in university, I started learning the field and it wasn't very much developed here in Israel at the moment. So uh, I just went to meetups and read stuff in the internet and started this process of uh, self-education uh, and learning until I had my first opportunity at one of the top agencies here in Israel. And since then, yeah, it's been almost 10 years in the area of UX and um, actually feel very lucky that I just found it half uh, by mistake, half uh, by luck, but I feel very, very lucky yeah, to work on this field. That's pretty much it. <laughs> I think a lot of us have found it by mistake, haven't we? <laughs> At least that's a lot of the stories that I hear is, oh, I kind of fell into it. It's I didn't plan to become a designer. <laughs> yeah, but in the moment I discovered it, it's like everything fell into place because I always had this this thing about organizing the world, organizing knowledge, where do things go? I need some order in my life, especially in my mind to get things working. And so when I understood what UX was, information architecture, like everything clicked and okay, I found the right thing for me. So I'm again, super happy and lucky to work on this field. How, you know, you said you had a, a master's in computer science. How did you get from computer science to design? What was that transition like? Um, well, actually I got my computer science master while I was already working on design. Uh, it's kind of a long story that connects between the university of my first degree and 
there was some connection there. So a couple of us were taken there to do uh, our master's degree in Sweden. Uh, my first degree is here in Israel. It was done, completed here in Israel. But I was already working on design back then. And uh, I have to say that there weren't many points uh, of connection between, you know, my day-to-day work and that degree. But I did learn a lot on how stuff gets done. I did complete a master thesis on creating a bot, which was a quite a hot thing back then, almost five years ago. So I did learn a lot of the experience after all. And uh, I guess I'm a fair coder as well. <laughs> you said the, about five years ago, bots were a really big thing. I just remembered bots. It seems that they've gone away. It was a big discussion about bots and bots being the next thing five years ago. And now nobody talks about them really anymore. Well, since I spent such a long time planning a bot, I had like this very, I, I could speak on this in an entire different podcast, but I had this <laughs> right. whole th- theory of artificial intelligence is still not there. So we'd better plan a good experience and then it will be probably, the bot will probably be able to complete some basic flow. So that was my hypothesis and what I tried to prove actually. Right. Well, how did you, did you prove it or? I, I believe so. Uh, but let's keep that for the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. That's fair enough. Cool. People are not here to listen to us talk about chatbots. Bots so, uh, is yeah. <laughs> so 2018. So. <laughs> right. And, and as we know, that's a few years ago. So let's just yeah. stick on the topic of design. <laughs> also, I know nothing about bots, so I wouldn't be able to ask any relevant, pertinent questions about bots. So, okay, let's go back to design. So one of the main reasons why I wanted to speak to you is because in all of these companies that you work for, you've had a lot of experience designing products for a large number of people, whether it's Salesforce or WeWork or Citibank. These are brands that have shipped products to probably all in all hundreds of millions of people. And one of the questions that I was having was when you design for so many people, how do you manage to balance the needs of so many individuals with the needs of the business? And you know, maybe at some of these companies, you weren't necessarily pushing pixels yourself, but still even being in charge of those teams, how were you balancing those two? So it's a good question. I think that uh, sometimes we get confused bec- between having dozens or millions of users and the name of uh, big brands. So products that I worked at uh, on at Citibank or WeWork or uh, Salesforce recently, uh, these are big brands, but not necessarily these products are used by millions. Each of the things that I worked at uh, were not necessarily niche, but had a, uh, a defined user, a couple of personas, two, three. Um, at Citibank, these were internal users. Uh, at WeWork, it was yeah a more uh, various public and now at salesforce it's also a business interface for people that work in the area of field service so i i cannot say that it's really everyone and everything uh, i did design a product for millions of users quite a few years back in my career when i was uh, the lead designer for the avg antivirus on mobile so we had over 100 million users and that was pretty much a wild ride because we had 32 languages and an app that needs to work in so many different devices and countries across cultures. And the answer is that 
um, you need to be very careful about how do you design and always design for the minimum common denominator. So if you're targeting to an older audience, um, you're not going to do flashy things or, or hidden buttons. You are going to do something. It's, it's like with inclusive design. Basically, you rely on that. You got to make it accessible for the less tech-savvy person that you got or the less experienced, whatever the, the common denominator is. Um, back then, I also wrote an article on what I called shiny, shiny apps such as it was um, Snapshot and uh, Calm, all these apps that barely had an interface and you couldn't know where to press. So many, it, it wasn't accessible to many users. A and that's fine because we evolve and you not necessarily you want to be accessible to every user maybe. Maybe you want to be luxurious, maybe you want to be cool to a younger audience. But you, if you are designing something for everyone, then you just need to rely on the most common denominator for all of them. Yeah, one of the things that I struggle with whenever I've found myself designing some of these products is that you, is maybe accepting the fact that you were are never going to design something that will be perfect for everyone because you have so many people. You said you have to design for the, you know, let's say the least technologically advanced person or whatever it is, but there will always be um, a pocket of users who doesn't necessarily feel like they're included in the design of that, doesn't necessarily feel like the solutions are good enough for them, which is so different than when you design a very niche product then you, you, can, you can tackle the design in a very different manner because you know exactly who you're working with, you know exactly what their needs are, you know exactly where to find them to put the products in front of them if you want to test and, and all of that. I guess maybe one of the things is that you need to accept that you're not going to please everyone if you design for so many people. Of course, you're not a pizza, so you cannot please anyone. <laughs> uh, Ooh, no, but... Even pizzas don't please everyone, <laughs> unfortunately. <course. laughs> no, but yeah, joke aside... Um... Probably a product that uh, needs to work for everyone is probably going to be a bit more concert conservative than the average. It may be boring for some people, but at least it will work for everyone. And that's probably the goal. Yeah. I know these organizations are not necessarily similar, maybe in the way they were putting their teams together or even in the way, even in the work they were doing. But I, would you be able to extract any patterns from there in terms of what the design capabilities of these organizations were struggling with at every single company you've worked with? Is there anything that you've, you've found to be a problem at every single company you worked for? Uh, I'm so glad that you asked that because the answer is yes. So if I look back at Citibank and uh, also at Bill Dots and right now at Salesforce, these are very different companies. There is a banking company, there was a construction startup, and now, well, Salesforce is <laughs> all around. <laughs> but something that I've found that is somehow coming back again and again to me is the fact that humans, because I... I'd rather not call them users, <laughs> uh, but humans don't necessarily trust automatic processes that they cannot see and cannot understand how and why happen. I first noticed it back then when I was at Citibank and I was designing uh, an interface for 
uh, investment uh, bankers and sales salesperson salespeople at the trading room and these guys we would show their a price of a bond and these guys wouldn't believe it because now it's probably it wasn't calculated right I'm not sure if the information is coming through the right the right interface the, from the right channels and I was like God, what can I do to make you believe it? it actually, it's actually coming from the right place. And it was right. such a struggle. And funny thing is that I had exactly the same reactions and the same situations uh, at, at the construction startup because um, the construction manager would look at the information about uh, the progress of each building. And yeah, I'm not sure that this is actually right. I got to go check myself on the field because probably you didn't get it right. And then now at Salesforce, I got uh, dispatchers that need to manage field uh, resources in the field. And so we have this huge, crazy optimization and automation engine that should uh, put every resource, you know, on the right time, on the right place to, to do their job. And they look at this Gantt and say, no, it's probably not the best way to organize uh, people. And, and I'm, I'm just speechless when I get that reaction, but yet again, it seems to be a pattern that people don't believe automatic processes that they cannot understand. And and still, the, the funny part of it is that there is no way in this world that a dispatcher can organize um, 1,500 uh, field resources in the field in a smart way. It's such a big... It's just big data that you cannot manage as, as one person. And yet they won't trust what's done for them. Right. Uh, so it's a big challenge. One that my team is tackling right now on how to make this, uh, this information more transparent and uh, more trustable. It's a, it reminds me of a search engine. I just don't remember the name, but one of these search engines that's looking for flights. They know the, it could be Momondo, I could be wrong. They know all the flights the moment you hit search most of the time, but they delay sending the results to you to make it to make it look to you as a user as if you're actually really searching hard when in fact they have the results almost instantly. So it goes back to that. These people just don't trust it. If you're too fast with it, they don't trust it. So they just give it to you slowly over time. It takes like five, six, seven seconds. So then you as a human think, oh, the results are probably accurate because it took a long time when in fact the results were there almost instantly. Absolutely. And we had the exact same case back then on the, on the antivirus. The scan would take two seconds, but right. then you as a user would think that they, they were not properly scanning my phone. So we had all this work of creating fancy animations to fill that time and actually figuring out what's the right time to let you waiting. Is it eight seconds fine? Is it 12? Uh, there was a lot of work around that. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I like to talk about trust in an organization when when it comes to to design and designers and their work. But what you're talking about is on the other side, which is trust between organizations and their users. So mm -hmm. I find that an even probably an even bigger challenge because you you could be having in an organization you maybe have you know twenty thirty people you might have to build trust with, but on the other side of a product you might have hundreds of thousands or millions or who knows so probably a massive challenge that you you've got to find a solution for mm -hmm. yeah in uh, one of the articles that you wrote on medium and 
I I will put this in the show notes because you wrote quite a few ones and, and they're really good. And we're going to talk about two of them today because okay. I, I found a couple of nuggets there of information that I think it would be good to unpack. So in one of your articles you wrote, when you work for a business, you need to understand how the business makes money. Caring for the user is not enough. You're a product designer, not a social worker. Let's unpack that because that's what this podcast is all about. Okay. So yeah, I wrote that uh, a while ago, not too long ago, uh, but I absolutely believe on on what I wrote there. And the reason I, I think it's pretty obvious, but somehow I got to that realization while I was interviewing uh, young designers to replace me back then on one of my maternity leaves. And the thing that I noticed is there's a lot you can learn about designers and their experience and the way they work by uh, by asking by letting them ask you questions and it was very very clear to me which of them were junior designers and which were more experienced because the more experienced ones would always ask about the business always be more interested on not just how is the team, uh, how many people you have, you got in the team, do we do research, you know, all the logistics, that's pretty basic. Anyone can ask that. But senior designers will come to you with tough questions about how do we make money? What would be my goals in the next 30, 60, 90 days? Which uh, uh, business functions do I have to work with? I mean, business functions, I mean, stakeholders. And so that that got me thinking and... I got to realize that also myself as a designer had quite an evolution on that. At first I was kind of, you know, young and naive and it's, yeah, all about user-centered design and I want to make it right for the user. I, I, I'm not trying to mock anyone. If, if anything, I'm mocking myself about being naive, uh, about the fact that I'm actually working for a business. So my job as a designer is to provide solutions that can answer for that business goal, hopefully when making it the best way possible for the user, providing a delightful experience or a good experience or easy to use, whatever is your KPI or whatever you're maximizing for. It could be a fancy app and then you want to make it delightful. It could be a business interface and then you just, if there's a person that's going to use this 12 hours a day, you don't want to make it flashy. You want to make it easy to use and uh, easy to understand. So yeah, my take on that is that as a designer, you cannot uh, isolate yourself from understanding the business, understanding how the company makes money uh, and what are the business goals? What are the KPIs that we are all together as a team working towards. I, I, that's a takeaway. As a, as a senior designer who understands the business, I understand that I don't work inside a bubble of making fancy, nice looking things. That's just not good enough. And so that's what I would recommend every designer. Ask the tough questions and understand that we are not an isolated function. We are part of a team. And that's what makes us partners. Yeah, I think there's some experience that needs to be earned there by designers because uh, to be able to do that, because school doesn't really teach you that. We don't really talk about it enough. 
in front of junior designers or with junior designers. We just bring them in and we bring them up to speed with tools and we bring them up to speed with process, learn how to do, how to run a, a testing session, do this, do that. But I feel that that conversation or that ev evolution of a designer being able to be in a room with business people and talk about business goals and all of that from a design perspective. I think that happens a bit later in your career. I, I don't think when you come out of school, you're ready to, to go in front of a board and argue for this next design iteration because it will do this and that metrics. So what's your, what's your take on that? No, absolutely. I, I agree with you. There, there needs to be an evolution. I think it's really, really bad that actually the academy and the different, you know, places uh, where designers learn how to be designers don't talk about that. Uh, and that's something that could be easily fixed. Guys, be aware we don't design for ourselves and we don't design just for our users. There's a business and if you guys want to get uh, money by the end of the month, then you probably need to align to those goals too. You know, it's, it, it sounds funny, but it's reality. We, again, if you were working on charity or you were a social worker, then that's fine, but we're not. We are working uh, and helping teams uh, achieve, uh, achieve goals. Now, I think it's fine that designers are maybe uh, naive or unexperienced uh, at the beginning. It's fine. By fine, I mean it's natural. Uh, but at some point, when you work in product companies, I would expect product managers or other senior designers to enlighten junior designers about, guys, it's fine that you are new, but this is how it works. And, and we should all align together. So I was very, very lucky. I worked with very experienced people right from the beginning. And yet it still took me a while to understand that. Yeah, I think it's also a thing that designers can do themselves. So when they know that they're in this role where they are supposed to care about metrics and all of that, but they don't understand them well enough, well, that's where they, they can reach out to a product manager. They can reach out to an analytics team rather than waiting for, for it to be the other way around, which is, I think, in my opinion, less likely to happen. But if you reach out and you start being interested in, and, and you start trying to connect the dots between what happens when I change something in the interface what happens in the product? What happens with our conversion rate? And, and, and as soon as you start trying to understand those metrics and you reach out to other people, what I have found is that your learning curve goes like that, just super fast because people want to talk about their work just like us designers want to talk about their work. If anyone in the team comes to you and wants to know about design, you will talk for ages and mm -hmm. they will learn because you talk, you're excited to, to tell them about your job. Well, similarly, if you go to someone whose job is numbers, they would love to just talk numbers with you and that's how you can learn. Mm -hmm. I agree. But also, you know, as also as young designers, you just, as you, as you just said, you just got to be interested. You just got to ask and then probably the answer is there. So, okay, we are redesigning this login screen. Fine. Why are we doing that? Why is that important? What is the benefit that we are trying to achieve? Uh, or what is wrong right now? Why is this not working? I mean, there's got to be a reason. And if it's prioritized, then it's probably, there's probably a better reason than just make it beautiful. Uh, so as a designer, you just got to 
put yourself out there, explore, ask the right questions, and then that's the way you learn. I think asking questions, you've mentioned it a couple of times, is so important. Not only asking questions, but learning how to ask the right questions. Because I remember when I was working in, in, in product teams a few years ago and I wasn't this experienced, and you, you get features, feature requests trickled down to you. And you don't really know where they're coming from. You don't really know why they're happening. And your job is really to ship them. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually, if you think about it, your job is to ask questions before you ship anything. As you said earlier, why are we doing this? What's not working right now? Not only because you want to get the reason to see what metrics you can improve, but actually sometimes what ends up happening is that if you ask the right questions, everyone else in the team will start wondering the same things like, oh yeah, why are we doing this really? And sometimes features that come from above get pushed out of the way because someone asks a couple of questions and makes everyone else realize, oh, actually, we don't really need this right now. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a priority. So I find that to be the responsibility of a designer in a team, especially in smaller teams when you might not have a product manager or someone who takes care of that side. I find that that's where designers should fit in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Also, if you don't ask the questions, you cannot really know what should be fixed. Is it everything? Right. Maybe it's just a little thing that that's uh, making it hard for users to move on the funnel. Unless you ask, you just cannot know where to start from. Yeah, and what are the success criteria? How do we know that after we've shipped this, we've done it right or not? Is it just, and, and you know what? It's also, in my opinion, it's also fine to say, we're doing this because we want our app to look better maybe for our brand. That's that's also fine, but at least then at least we know that's the goal and then we know how to measure at the end of it. But uh, I find that if you start every project with figuring out what the goal is or the success metrics or criteria, rather than trying to retrofit them afterwards, you are much more likely to actually help move those metrics in a positive direction. I cannot agree more. I think that Together with the whole concept of uh, business goals, something else that is not taught back then at school is uh, KPIs and goals. And I think that when designers hear that term, many of them get scared because, oh my God, how they are going to measure this? How are they going to measure this? And how am I going to make it, uh, make it right? And I believe that goals they shouldn't scare us. They are actually there to advocate for our work because how can you measure the success of something if you haven't set a goal? I could say that, that same thing for almost any process in life. I mean, if you don't have a criteria of what's to consider it done, then you cannot measure this. So... Whenever someone comes after a year and asks you, okay, so what did we achieve with this? And you don't have a good answer, then that's too bad. If you have an answer, if you had a goal from the beginning and then, okay, you can say, okay, yeah, we achieved this or we didn't, or what would I do to make it better next time? But you got to have a goal from the beginning. Otherwise, there's nothing to compare it to. I also find if you've been in a company for long enough, it's this is more of a long-term play. But if you keep asking the right questions all the time, if you keep talking about metrics, if you keep bringing results in front of your stakeholders, sooner or later, I don't know when, I don't know if, I, if it's after three months or one year or two years, but at some point in time, 
people in the business will start thinking of you as more of a business person rather than just a designer. So sometimes it's it just so happens that they come straight to you and they say, hey, designer, we are really struggling right now with our conversion rate or we are really struggling with whatever metric, right? Uh, churn or whatever it is. What can we do about that? And I think that the moment you start talking about, the moment you start putting design in that light, where design suddenly can start moving metrics, you become such a such an such a much more important part of the company than if you're just there and you just push pixels around. Of course, and <clears throat> you have everything to gain in that situation because, first of all, they see you as a as a business partner, not just again a pixel pusher. Uh, so that's the first benefit. Benefit. Uh, second benefit is that after a while you will actually, you will see that you don't need to ask that much. They will already come with the answers. And then that's awesome because things become way more clear. And when you've kind of, I wouldn't say finished that education process of your stakeholders, but they are somehow aligned on what you need to start working, then it makes it easier for everybody. And then when they have to prepare all that stuff before coming to you, um, you already make sure that the things that that you get to do are more important or more elaborated or they have been thought through uh, in a deeper way. So that's, you know, gain for all sides. Yeah, this reminds me of something that uh, a director of design used to say this. My door will always be open, but I don't want you to come to me with problems. I want you to come to me with solutions. And the interesting part about that was that you, you always had to present the least one solutions. Here's the problem and here's what I think we should do. And his role would be to not necessarily validate because obviously he couldn't validate that, but to say this is the right direction or this is not the right direction. But what ended up happening more often than not is as you start working through the problem, you don't end up going to him at all because you actually have a solution already. So uh, very rarely would you end up talking to him because more most of the time you just wouldn't need it anymore. So it's uh, this is similar to that when people just come to you with a well thought out problem versus just, hey, here's my problem. Help me solve it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sounds like a smart guy, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, we've had him in the first season and his episode was really successful, uh, a, a great guy. So I want to segue a little bit from talking uh, about this article that you wrote into into another one, but I won't refer to the article straight away because that's uh, I'll do that a bit later. But I want to talk about hiring because at, at this point in your career, I can only assume you're not really pushing pixels anymore. I can only assume you're not in Figma that often anymore, or at least not as often as you used to be. I can assume that a lot of your work revolves around managing designers and maybe talking to stakeholders on a daily basis, framing design in different ways in front of these people, evangelizing the power of design, whatever it is. So let's talk a bit about, first of all, the, some of that work that someone at your level does so people get the, the context and understand um, a bit more what you do on a daily basis. And then we're going to talk hiring a little bit. Okay. So to your question, yeah, my time gets divided between some hands-on work, which I still have because we have a relatively small team and still there's much to do. And personally, I still enjoy the hands-on work. So I keep a couple of projects to myself. Um, but 
definitely there's a lot of time spent on um I call it enabling my designers, just helping them do their best work, facilitating whatever process they got that is stuck, or maybe if uh, they want to review, go through some of their work to get more ideas or come with a problem and hopefully an answer. Um, and uh, well, you know, since uh, we are still in the COVID era and most of us are working from home, so I spend a lot of time on on thinking of how we can, you know, build our team and feel as a team. So we got all our offline meetings and we meet once a week at the office. Also, my team is uh, uh, located here in Israel, but we have another half of the team in the US. Uh, so sometimes it's quite complicated to coordinate. And there's a lot of there's a lot of collaboration, though, but we spend a lot of time on thinking out these processes, how to work together with our team in the US, how to um, feel as a team right here when we are not all together in a room. And yeah, some hiring too. So there's uh, there's quite a lot of time spent on all these tasks. And when it comes to hiring, uh, someone told me recently, hiring is the most important job of a design lead or someone who leads a design organization. What's your take on that? Do you find that this one of more challenging as well as important parts of the job or maybe not necessarily now at Salesforce because of the size of the team? Uh, right now at the moment, it's at the moment, it's not taking uh, much of my time. Um, also, the Israeli design community is so small that uh, in the last time we had to recruit, I couldn't uh, interview all of our candidates because I had some previous acquaintance with some of them and then I didn't right. want it to be unfair. Uh, so that's like a challenge of a whole different level. Uh, but my take on this is it's a, it's a very time-consuming activity. There's a lot of candidates, some of them good, some of them bad. And most of us as recruiters just don't have the time and the patience to focus on each of them. I give a lot of advice on mentoring to designers who are starting their recruiting processes. And all the time I tell them to picture me as a persona who is jet lagged, tired, bored, and annoyed in general. So I just want to have, I just want to see the value of your portfolio in 30 seconds or less. I need to understand really, really fast that it's worth for me to go deep into whatever you got you have to show me so yeah that's actually my best advice uh, if you get me to be interested in your portfolio and read what you did and see your mock-ups prototypes videos or whatever you show there uh, then there's a good chance that we may talk and move forward but uh, you know that saying that there's only one one opportunity for a for a first impression. So it works pretty much like that also with a portfolio. I, I get 20, maybe 30 portfolios need to go through all of them. If I don't see the spark in 15 seconds, it's gone. It's not fair, but that's reality. For sure. I like that idea of imagining a persona for your portfolio because your portfolio is a project that is a design project if you think about it. So you, you got to think, well, who do I want to read this? 
what state will they likely be in when they're going to read this? How much time are they going to have? And then adjust your portfolio based off that. So I think that is really some great piece of advice there because I I think we, we talk a lot about portfolios and we tend to say, well, here are kind of the things you have to do. Talk about this, talk about that. But very rarely do I hear this idea of, but also think of who's going to read your portfolio and also think of how little time they actually have. So thanks for bringing some, uh, some, well, some much needed uh, reality into this. Some people just spend 15 seconds and that's it. So what attracts your attention then? If you only have 15, 20 seconds, what attracts your attention in the portfolio? It's a good question because it, all, it also depends on the kind of designer that I'm looking for at that moment. I may maybe focused on UX, maybe focused on UI. Usually when I'm looking for product designers, I'm looking for someone that does both. But I realized that 99% of the designers are stronger either here or, I mean, UX or UI. Uh, unicorns don't exist. Uh, I'm sorry to disappoint you all. And so, well, depending on my focus, I'm kind of in, in a certain state of mind. But in any case, even if it's a UX uh, designer that I'm looking for, stronger in UX, I still expect a very clean and neat portfolio, which has a good structure and that can, you know, I got to look at one of your projects and understand very clearly what was the problem, what did you do, what was the result. Actually, uh, a few years ago, I had one a project in my portfolio, and then I spoke to some startup founder, and he told me, I, I read one of your case studies, and it was so clear to me what was the project and what did you do, uh, and I felt like it was like one of the nicest things someone ever told me. I actually made it, was able to explain that properly, so I felt very, very good about it. And explaining a project in two or three sentences, it's really, really tough, but you got to get it right. You got to have that summary on the top. What were you trying to achieve? What happened? And then that may be the, the teaser for me as a recruiter to, yeah, okay, this sounds interesting. Let's, let's read on. I don't know if you know about this uh, saying that journalists use called don't bury the lead, which uh, comes from the Second World War when they could only send uh, short messages and they wouldn't know when the message would cut. So mm -hmm. they would send the most, inform uh, the most important information first. And that's the way I think of a portfolio. If you only had one or two sentences and that was everything you could communicate to someone about the piece of work, what would that sentence be? And what I always say is for as much as possible, and I would be interested to hear if you have a different opinion on this, is start with the results. Something along the lines of designing a business-to-business -to -business tool that helped a company increase conversion by 5%. I don't know. This is off the top of my head. Something like that. Yeah. Well, of course, and I'm not sure if you necessarily need to have the results there, but it's got to be a very short and very clear paragraph on what is this all about with enough motivation to, to read on. Uh, but about what you just said, I do recommend writing all those results uh, in your CV. You know, sometimes people post, yeah, I was a UX design lead at 
this and that company and in that description they write design mock-ups and wireframes work together with stakeholders and i'm like okay that's fine that, that's pretty obvious that's a place actually where i would be happy to see i designed an app that uh, converted a hundred percent better i don't know uh, yet again we are uh, uh, coming up with all these uh, kpis but that's actually something that i would uh, like to see a uh, um, a results uh, focused uh, cv yeah and i don't think people should be pressured into necessarily putting a number to it but results doesn't necessarily mean i've increased conversion by five percent because that also very much depends on what work you're actually doing if you don't work in the growth team of your company you're probably not going to touch the conversion rate right but again going back to what we said earlier starting every project with some sort of a success criteria that's what you want to talk about and say well maybe maybe it's not number but maybe it's allowing disabled people to access universal credit whatever yeah. it is again this is totally at the top of my head but... absolutely but it can also be you know design goals such as created a design system which helped consolidating the entire design language of uh, of the company's uh, products that's a design goal that's perfectly fine yeah for sure any portfolio red flags anything that you you see and you're straight away turned off anything it might depend on whatever role you're looking for but it's a good question i try really hard to be objective and not be guided by my own bias uh, but i think that when i see grammatical mistakes or like a, gra a little grammar mistakes here and there i don't mind but when i see like really bad english or things that very you know uh, big typography issues uh, things that just seem unprofessional i'm kind of turned off and it, it's sad because it doesn't necessarily mean that this person is a is is not a good UX designer or they don't understand how to do their stuff. It's your presentation card, so you gotta get it right. For sure, yeah. It's it's all about it's all about what you can control, mm -hmm. and you might not be able to con to control what someone looking at your portfolio thinks about it. But what you can do is you can control your grammar. You can control how clean it is. You can control the way you write your study case. You can control the imagery you use. It's all of that that's quite easy to do, I would say. Of course, and uh, you know, some people sometimes have the excuse that it's not their mother language or stuff like that. But you can always find someone to review your things, even if it was if it is your own language. I would recommend you to have someone, a friend of yours, review, read. Even someone that is not experienced in design, ask a friend of yours, you read this. Do you understand what I meant? Do you understand what I did? It's I know it's not a designer and maybe they will not understand everything, but keep in mind that also HR recruiters sometimes go through our portfolios. So the persona can, it's not only the, the hiring manager. You got a, a various personas that could go through it. I actually think asking someone who's not a designer is a really great piece of advice because they will not be understanding naturally some of the jargon you would normally be using. And it might push you to write even clearer or even jar more jargon-free, which will never hurt anyone. Nobody will ever say, oh, this portfolio is 
too well written. You see what I mean? So yeah. I think asking asking someone and even look look even if it's if you don't have anyone can do it whatever, just use basic stuff like Grammarly. Mm-hmm. At least it irons out your your grammatical mistakes. Right? It's, yeah, and I would I would do. avoid the jargon anyway. <laughs> and... uh, right. Yeah. For sure. So that's that's yet another advice is try to write as clear as possible. Avoid uh, words that not everyone might understand. I have this uh, love and hate relationship with the jargon sometimes because uh, sometimes I want to you know clarify some point about something which is not clear and maybe it doesn't have enough affordance and but then I feel really bad about saying the word affordance to our stakeholders and I I have this love and hate relationship I gotta I gotta admit that <laughs> yeah fair enough <laughs> when you write affordance and then you write a star and at the bottom of the presentation you write the definition of affordance just yeah. just in case <laughs> or straight uh, linked to google somewhere <laughs> right <laughs> thesaurus.com there mm-hmm. it is yeah yeah <laughs> so when it comes to hiring I would assume you approach hiring differently if you'd go for a junior designer, a senior, or a lead. So what are some of the differences, but also what are some of the similarities in how you would approach hiring people at different levels? So we already spoke about this a bit. Uh, I can learn a lot by the questions people ask. And uh, well, sometimes in, in the last few times that I had to hire, we weren't necessarily looking for a senior or a lead or a principal, but we were looking for a designer and we would be happy to find the right person regardless of the title. But a few years ago, when I was uh, hiring in one of the companies I was working at, I just understood that one of the things I'm looking for when I hire is... uh, is that I would like to drink coffee with that person every morning. I look for people that we can get along with, um, that we would have interesting topics to talk about, that I can see, you know, a thinking, uh, a, a person with critical thinking that questions things that could work in a team uh, together, be, help, be helped and help others. So I'm looking for designers, but I'm, you know, also looking for people uh, that can work together as a team. Yeah, and culture is very important. So no, no wonder. Um, I, I can remember uh, many a times when in interviews we've rejected very well-skilled people because we didn't think they would fit in culturally. So I think that's fair. That's a complex topic, though, because culture doesn't mean... Uh, that everyone should be, you know, same age or live in the same city and be be kind of uh, like-minded. But I do need to see a connection. Uh, I think that teams that have uh, uh, people of different ages and different, maybe even coming from different countries, I think there is a lot to win from having uh, different people with different perspectives, parents with little kids or um people that are not married, you know, in different stages of life. So I aim to have a various team, but again, I need to have some personal connection. Yeah, 100%. When I said culture, obviously culture is a very wide word. I didn't mean 
I didn't mean culture. I meant what you said is would I have a coffee with this person every morning, which, which is I find is important because it creates relationships between people who then have to work all day long. And you're much more likely to want to, I know, give better feedback or have an open, honest conversation with someone you, you, you're connected with in a way. So I find that to be very important at work, yeah, especially just... when you work remotely, because yeah. that's sometimes it can feel alone uh, or sorry, not alone, lonely to be remote. But if you have a really good connection with a couple of people in your team, you can always reach out to them and say, Hey, do you want to have a five minute chat or about this or about that or about nothing? I find that to be very important. Yeah. You wrote an article and this is the last thing we'll, we'll talk about on the topic of hiring, but you wrote an article about the questions that you love people to ask you during an interview and, and you categorize them, you know, you said, these are, these are the boring questions and these are the smarter questions. So let's talk a little bit about the smarter questions and, and why it's important to ask some of those. What does it tell you as someone interviewing when someone asks one of those questions? Well, first of all, it tells me that it, they took the effort of even planning what would be a smart question to be. So that's already something. Um, my claim is that the boring questions, I mean, the answer to those questions will come up anyway, because you're probably going to know who's going to be your manager or what projects you guys are working at. So that's going to come up anyway. Um, but I think the smarter questions first make you look more experienced, more interesting, more, uh, well, you know, just more knowledgeable of what's your craft because again if we go back to the topic of the podcast design meets business then we need to remember all the time that we are not isolated we design for a company and then you gotta be connected to whatever that company is or at least understand it yeah uh, i'll just run really quickly through a couple of them and i'll just we'll just link the article so people can actually read the reasoning between um, behind everything but what are the biggest challenges the team faces at the moment strengths and weaknesses uh, if <laughs> i love this one if you could do any magic what current problem in the product you would solve right away and i think that tells a lot about what problem you might have to solve if you join that company what are the traits and skills that would make me su successful in this in this company or in this position these are a few of them and the last one which i actually think is the best one do you have any doubts or concerns regarding my fit to this position that i can address before we end and i think that's a ballsy question to ask but yeah. i also think it's yes yeah, so let's, let's talk just for a second about that because i love that okay so just let me go back uh, to the magic wand question because sure. I think that, uh, you know, you got to remember that when you go into an interview, they are interviewing you, but also you are interviewing them in some way. And there's so much you can learn from that company and that person when you ask that question, then you can see if, if there's some bright brightness in their eyes and they are all excited about what could be done, or maybe they just start raising up all these issues that make their development process so slow or so complicated. I mean, it could be anything, uh, but I've seen so many different questions, so many different answers uh, that bring up so much information for you as a candidate. So it's really worth asking that one. As for the last question, uh, yeah, it, uh, it requires a lot of confidence uh, and guts. Um, 
but I, oh, yeah, you know, I stand by what I wrote. If uh, these people tell you that everything is fine and then they reject you, then they are not so nice people, just to put it that way. <laughs> right. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, but they might also tell you something that's been maybe misunderstood in the interview and you get the chance to clarify it or something that you haven't had a chance to talk about that's quite important for them. I find that uh, to be such a good question. Yeah, that's exactly the idea. I got to say that even myself, at some point I wanted to ask that and like, I okay, I, I cannot put myself to ask that in that moment, but it's worth doing it. And whoever did it, from what I've heard, had good results. So right. you got to try. <laughs> I also think you you kind of know where when to ask that question and when to not ask that question. If you know the interview hasn't gone very well and you're not too fussed about it, then why would you ask that? Yeah. But if you think it's gone well, if you really want the job, then maybe it's a good time to exactly to ask. don't push it. If it suits, then right. ask it. Also, if you don't that want that position because what what of what you have just heard during the interview, then maybe it's not worth you know exploring sure. that. Too. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. Something you mentioned earlier, you said, I, I'm still pushing pixels. I'm still doing work at the moment because I enjoy it and because the team is quite small. And something that I wanted to ask is you start in design and you become a, an individual contributor. And at some point in time, you get so good at what you're doing that you are at a at the junction where you can get to decide to continue on that path of being an individual contributor, or you can say, do you know what? I want to go into managing people. And very rarely there is that combination, that hybrid role where you can do some and some. But when you find yourself at that junction, how do you know which way to go? I guess it's a bit of a personal calling and it requires to be very honest with yourself about what you like, what you're capable of, and where you see your career uh, in a few years from now. I can tell you that before I joined the Salesforce, there's one of the designers on my team, and he was asked if he would be happy to lead the team. And he explored the position for a few months, and eventually he decided that he's not happy being a manager and not so interested in that, and he's happy being an individual contributor. And I have so much respect for him just for being honest about what he's interested in and what he's not. Um, so that's the reason why especially big organizations have these parallel titles of principal designer, and the same level as a director. So that's perfectly fine. There's a lot of to do in both, uh, in both places. For sure. All right. Let's go to the end of the podcast questions, a couple okay. of them, and then I'll let you go. So one of them is what's one soft skill that you wish more designers would possess? I think if I got to pick one, then I would go with the uh, communication skills, more specifically storytelling. A lot of what we do, of course, is the work we do, but I think even more is the way we tell it, the way we explain it to our stakeholders, the way we present it, both in interviews and also, you know, in the day-to-day -day work. Uh, there's a lot to lose and a lot to, there's a lot to miss when designers don't know how to explain their work properly. You may have done great stuff, but then you are not able to make it through stakeholders and then it's a lost opportunity. So I would love if, if designers 
got more practice on that too. Cool. That's a great answer. And the other one, and this might be a tough one. What is one piece of advice that has changed your career for the better? Well, I'm not particularly proud of this, but I think that as a young designer, I felt that my work was me. And it wasn't necessarily from a place of ego, but I was very passionate about every single thing I did. And when I learned that it's not all about me, but it's about us as a team, working together towards some goal and just leave your ego at the door. When you get feedback or you get criticized, it's not because you are not okay or not a good designer or not a good person. It's just because someone is trying to help you make whatever you did better or simply giving you a different opinion. And then I think the whole design craft became better and nicer for me to complete because until then I felt like under, you know, a very criticizing eye. And then I understood it's perfectly fine to get feedback about something that maybe it's not as good as it could be. Leave the ego at the door, uh, be open. And from there, I think that's kind of a realization that really changed the path of my career. Awesome. That's great to finish on. So Nati, any last words? Where can people find you? Anything that you want to let everyone else know? So first I want to say thank you. This has been great. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Medium uh, and I guess Facebook and Instagram just as anyone else. <laughs> uh, TikTok, not just yet. I'm just watching from the side. Uh, right. I guess, uh, yeah, LinkedIn would be the best. Sounds good. Nati, thank you very much once again for being part of Design Meets Business. This has been a massive pleasure. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch. Thank Have you very, very much. That's a wrap for today. I hope you found this episode useful and that you've learned something that you're ready to implement at work tomorrow. If you've enjoyed this, as always, it would mean the world to me if you'd share it with your community, if you'd leave a review, and of course, if you'd remember to tune in for the next one. Peace.